In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Brothers, sisters, respected viewers, assalamu alaikum jami'an wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. So the brothers today insisted that we finish the whole subha of salawat before we start the, the lecture, so apologies for the delay. So welcome once again to our life series and a very quick recap to situate those who perhaps have missed a couple of the lectures or joining us recently. As you will remember, we're going through the theme of knowledge and rationality in Islam. So we explored in general what Islam says about the importance of knowledge, the importance of reason, the importance of rationality to start with. And then we looked at the alternative, and the alternative was ignorance, was jahl, which we translate as ignorance and foolishness. And when we saw what our religion says about ignorance and foolishness, we saw that this cannot be an alternative for us. Therefore, we have to come back to the path of knowledge and reason. Before we pursue that path, we decided to study two topics that in fact are the conditions for knowledge to be Islamic in our religion. The first one is that the knowledge has to be acquired and has to be used with sincere intentions, with the intent that this is something that pleases God, that brings us closer to God. That's the first condition. And we said that the highest form of that condition is called ikhlas. The second condition is that the knowledge has to be transformational. The knowledge has to lead to action. It cannot just be data and information that we accumulate and we consider that to be knowledge. Knowledge has to change us internally, has to change us spiritually to the point where this starts to show in the way we behave in the world, the way we act in the world. These are the two conditions that if they are met, then our religion says this knowledge, regardless of what type of knowledge it is, this knowledge is Islamic. It is acquired and used with the right intentions, and it leads to action. It changes us from within, and it leads to action. Once we understood this, we now started on this path of what does it mean to be in a community of knowledge. So for us specifically, we have to therefore become seekers of knowledge. We have to be people who endeavor, try to acquire knowledge. We seek knowledge. So we spent a good amount of time going through what our religion says about being a good learner. And we called those ingredients, the ingredients of the effective learner, the ingredients, the ingredients of the seeker of knowledge in Islam. And we saw that some of these are very spiritual. They have to do with our intentions and how we approach knowledge and what we want to do with it. And some of these are very practical to the point where our religion talks about the importance of being careful when we eat and how we eat. Or, for instance, how we manage our time. And when in the day is it better for us to acquire the knowledge? 
and we spoke about the manners of the learner and inshallah we're gonna talk about that topic again a little bit later we spoke about the merits of the learner how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala views the person who is trying to acquire knowledge in the Islamic sense in the sense that we defined meeting those two criteria so inshallah that first heading of the learner in Islam is done then we started with the second heading which is now the teacher and we said we can't for everything that we're going to say about the teacher or the scholar the person who now carries knowledge we can't view it as being this other person the moment you are on the path to acquire knowledge it means that you are somewhere on the continuum of being a scholar of being someone who carries knowledge therefore this is going to come with responsibilities this is going to mean that you have to carry yourself in a different way because now you know. You may know very little, but you know something. And that puts you in a different category. We're not pure learners or pure scholars and teachers. We are both all the time, especially for people who live in these types of communities and societies. You are always an example and a model for someone. You are always representing more than just yourself. So at all times, yes, you may be just a learner, only a seeker of knowledge for now, but the truth is you are also a scholar. And that amount of knowledge that you carry already comes with a responsibility. So when we start talking about the characteristics of the teacher, we said we're not only talking about the characteristics of the person we're looking for, we're also talking about the characteristics that we have to aspire to emulate and to act upon and to show in our lives as well. When we started the topic of the teacher, we began by saying first and foremost, let's clarify, who is the teacher in the absolute sense? And we said very quickly, without going through the two lectures that we spent on this, that in the absolute sense, the teacher can only be the person that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala appoints as the teacher. The one that carries a knowledge they bring to humanity that is infallible, that is divine. What about everyone else? Everyone else is a scholar to the extent that they represent that knowledge. They repeat that knowledge. They share that knowledge to the world. In themselves, they are people like everyone else. We're all creatures and servants of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We're not special in, in this alone. The name we carry, the title we carry, the distinction that we have as a scholar is going to be the knowledge in the sense that is this the knowledge that God wanted to share with humanity so this knowledge was given to the messengers and the prophets and the imams and now that we live in a world where we don't have access to our imam we're looking for people who will bring that knowledge to us to the extent that someone can bring that knowledge to us they are a scholar this is the part we're looking for okay so once that's understood, we started talking about the characteristics that we're looking for in that teacher and in that scholar. And we said we go back between calling this person a teacher and a scholar because the important aspect of the role is that they carry knowledge. They are a alim. In Arabic, simply meaning someone who carries knowledge. But in English, we use the word scholar. Okay? So, someone who carries knowledge. This person who carries knowledge... First and foremost, we said, our religion says, be very careful who you choose 
to listen to. Be very careful who you choose to learn from. And be careful that when you are listening to someone, when you are reading someone, when you are opening your mind and heart to someone, this is influencing you. This is part of who you now are in the world. And it's affecting your mind, and it's affecting your heart, and it's affecting your soul, whether you realize it or not. Every person you listen to is going to affect your soul. Every movie you watch, every book you read, every teacher you listen to is affecting the way you think, whether you realize it or not. And that's why our imams keep saying, first, be aware of it so that at least you know, right? You are careful. You let in, you filter, you assess the information and you decide what you let in, in your mind, in your heart, in your soul. And you go and acquire the tools to be able to assess you learn the things you need to learn to be able to determine, is this information I want to expose myself to or no? Okay, and this happens with time. It doesn't happen overnight. Once we understand the importance of choosing the right teacher, the right scholar, the right source of information, we now get into the characteristics of that person. And we said there's two ways to look at these characteristics. On the one side, we simply say these are characteristics of the person we want to follow and we want to learn from. And the other way to understand this is to say these, these are the responsibilities of carrying knowledge. These are the duties that the moment you carry knowledge, it comes with a duty in the world. You, you are not the same person and you do not have the same duties and the same responsibilities in the world once you carry knowledge. You are not the same before and after having that knowledge. And this is the second condition we talked about. Knowledge must lead to action. Knowledge needs to be transformational. How is it transforming you? So this is what we started to talk about. And as we said, we can't only, when we go through these characteristics, we can't only be thinking about someone else. I have to constantly come back to myself and say, how much of this am I applying? How much of these characteristics am I moving towards? Am I becoming? Right? Because now I know. I know that this is what my religion says. I know this is what God says that I have to be and how I have to act once I have the knowledge that I have. Okay? So, we started going through the characteristics. So, very quickly, I'll summarize the main ones that we described until now. And today, inshallah, in the time we have, we'll continue building on those. The desirable characteristics that we started to talk about. First of all, we're looking for someone, and therefore we want to become someone, who has spiritual discipline. That's first characteristic. Secondly, we are looking for someone who has an ability to guide, an ability to teach and to share guidance, Okay, to make us see the truth, find the truth, recognize the truth. We're looking for someone who is stabilizing a faith. Someone who makes our faith stronger, better, clearer, as opposed to someone who fills our minds with doubts and questioning and confusion, right? Someone who leads by action and by example more than by knowledge and word only. We said that one of the characteristics has to be that this is someone who gives a lot of weight to or someone who has a clear preoccupation with the afterlife, with death and after death. 
How much place does the idea of what happens after death hold in this person's mind and what you are taking from them? How is it affecting the way you understand your afterlife? What's the source of knowledge of this person? And we saw that if you go back to Ahl al-Bayt they emphasize the main source is the Holy Quran. Combined with the Holy Quran is Ahl al-Bayt themselves. This has to be the main source of knowledge. And the knowledge you are getting from them has to lead you back to the Holy Quran and the teachings of Ahl al-Bayt And finally, we talked about this idea. It's a little abstract, but we spent a little bit of time on it. The idea that the person who is a scholar or a teacher is a guardian over that knowledge. So how well are they taking care of that knowledge? And we explained the meanings of that, where the Holy Prophet ﷺ was saying, for instance, the best way to see this, to consider the, the scholars as guardians over the knowledge of the messengers, is that they do not enter into this world, as he said. And when he was asked what that means, he said, it means that they do not become servants of the rulers. They do not become obsessed with this world. That it makes the knowledge that they have a tool that they are using for something else. And on the other side, yeah, maybe I'm going to... So so those we avoid. I'm just looking at the time. So the scholars we avoid, obviously, are the ones who lack the spiritual discipline, one. The ones who either only give empty talk, they don't act on it, or they act in a way that is contradictory to their talk. That's two. We avoid those who seem to be using religion as a tool. And you'll remember the sayings of Imam Ali alayhi salam, he talked a lot about this, including the ones who have an amazing mind and an amazing memory and they can recite things, right? That's what Imam Ali alayhi salam was saying, that there are those who were good at learning the knowledge, they were good at talking, they were good at memorizing, but they're using knowledge as a tool for this world, right? Like any other tool. Those who lack depth, those who lack judgment, those who lack wisdom, they only understand things at, at a surface level. They're not able to have a penetrating insight into things. Okay, the imam says, avoid them. And in fact, he says, this is one of the people who are coming to learn but they do not have the wisdom and the judgment required to carry the knowledge. This knowledge is going to be dangerous in the mind and in the heart of someone like this. They don't know how to use it. right? And we're going to keep exploring this in the next lectures, inshallah. Something else to avoid. Those who have very low self-restraint or very low self-discipline. And this shows in all sorts of ways. Those who are excessively interested in material gains. And those who do not have the tools required to communicate and to teach. Teaching is, a, is an art. It's a discipline. You have to know how to speak, how to present information in a way that does not cause more confusion. Right? You are actually able to provide the information with clarity and in a convincing way, especially if there are arguments and proofs and evidence. You know how to present it. You know how people fall into mistakes, logical mistakes, contradictions, Sophistry, as they call it, right? You don't want to make logical mistakes. The imams alluded to this in a number of ahadith. You want someone who understands the manners of correct thinking, the imams were saying, right? The arts, they called it, the arts of deep thinking. That was until last lecture. In the last lecture, we started talking about the idea of 
having someone who has the ability to present religious teachings in a balanced way between fear and hope, between making you not give up on God's mercy without becoming someone who is daring to commit sins. Right? And we said this is a delicate balance to walk. You have to know when to push on one, when to push on the other. You don't want someone who is going to constantly give you permission and make you more daring to go and sin because God subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to forgive all the sins anyways. And you also don't want someone to constantly remind you only and only of God's wrath and punishment to the point where you feel like you are never going to be deserving of God's forgiveness. So you despair. I'm someone that has committed so much wrong and so much bad that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will never forgive me. I will never be of those who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgives. Those are two extremes, two mistakes to be avoided. So the imams constantly come back to this idea of finding someone who knows how to present religion in a balanced way so that you stay balanced in your faith between mercy and fear, between hope and fear. I hope for God's mercy and I fear his anger and his punishment. Okay, that was one idea. We talked about the ability to guide and last week we started exploring in more detail what that means. So some of the things we said and we started with this idea of understanding what type of relationship does this person have with knowledge. The person who is a teacher, a scholar or a teacher, their main characteristic is that they carry knowledge and they are able to share it. So we're looking for someone that the imams have described in a way that tells us this is their relationship with knowledge. We have a relationship with people. We have a relationship with nature. We have a relationship with mosques. We have a relationship with knowledge. What's my relationship with knowledge? So we saw part of it is that this is someone who has the experience of not knowing and then learning. And we said how you acquire that knowledge is important. We want to find someone who learned in the right way, following the right approach, the right steps, the right methodology, so that they can help me. They can assess where I am and guide me in the right way to where I need to go. Right? That's one point. Another point, someone who is solid in their faith, it can be someone who is himself or herself full of doubts and questions and not sure of all sorts of things and they are putting themselves in a position of teaching others. It doesn't work. You have to make sure that this is someone who is convinced by what they are saying and what they are teaching. Thirdly, humility towards knowledge. And we said this is different. Sometimes we hear modesty, humility. We think about how we are with other people, that you're not someone who is arrogant. You, have, you don't have takabbur, right? You don't consider yourself greater, more important than other people, better than other people. That's one sense of humility. But here we're talking about knowledge. What does it mean to have humility towards knowledge? It means that you are always in a situation where you consider yourself having to learn a lot more about it. You're modest about knowledge. You don't think that you know everything there is to know about a topic. And we saw the ahadith about this, where the imam says the moment someone goes in that direction, they are only revealing their ignorance. They're not revealing their knowledge by showing that they know more. Okay? Or they know too much to learn or to go back to a state of a learner. We also mentioned that 
or the imams were saying, go for someone who never tires of learning. They never leave, they never go out of the state of being a learner. They never feel filled. They are always hungry for knowledge. And we said, yes, this is something interesting in itself. It, it speaks to the rigor and the depth of knowledge of the person, for sure. But even more importantly, this becomes contagious. This is a passion. And not everybody can carry a passion for knowledge in a sustained way. Knowledge is difficult. It requires energy. It requires time. It's all sacrifices. Right? When you sit and you learn and you read and you think and you write, that's energy and time and sacrifice. To be in that state for a long time is not something you find everywhere. It's not common. It's exceptional. So when the imams say go for that person, it also means so that this person affects you. This is a passion. It's contagious. They have a flame in them that is not common. It's exceptional. So you also want to be touched by that flame. What is it that keeps pushing this person to give so much weight to knowledge and to care so much about knowledge? I want to be affected by that person, by that quality in that person. And then finally, we saw the hadith that spoke about the deeper insight. Look for someone who sees deeper than understanding th things at a superficial level. That's what we carried, uh, what we covered until now. So inshallah, today we build on this. So continuing with the idea that we're looking for someone who has humility towards knowledge. As promised last time, we ran out of time, so I stopped. We said that there is a part from the letter that Imam Ali alayhi salam wrote to his son. And we've spoken about it in the past. You can find this in Nahj al-Balagha in number 31. Unfortunately, it is not 100% clear whether the Imam wrote this to Imam al-Hassan salam as many write and how it is often presented and explained. Or I am more of the opinion that it was actually written to Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiyyah, not Imam al-Hassan salam. Regardless, this is Imam Ali salam writing a letter full, inshallah, in the future. We can spend a lecture or a series of lectures on this beautiful letter written by Imam Ali salam. It's absolutely beautiful. We're only taking the part that has directly to do with humility and knowledge, because that's what we're talking about. What do we mean by this? What does it actually look like that someone has a humility? They are modest towards learning and towards knowledge. So I'm not, by the way, the, there are slight differences in the version I am using. The version I'm using is from a book called Tuhaf al-Uqul. But it's very close and you can find it in Nahj al-Balagha. So there might be a few words here and there that have a, a variant. So Imam Ali alayhi salam, he writes at some point in that letter, وَقَرَعْتُكَ بِأَنْوَاعِ الْجَهَالَاتِ لِأَلَّا تَعُدَّ نَفْسَكَ عَالِمًا فَإِنْ وَرَدَ عَلَيْكَ شَيْءٌ تَعْرِفُهُ so the imam starts by saying, I have struck you with all kinds of ignorance or ignorances. So at this point, the imam has given examples of previous nations who have committed all sorts of mistakes and, and problems and the reason why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala punished them. So after this, the imam tells him, and the reason why I have struck you, Right, I have given you the examples, but the Imam uses a metaphorical language. He says, the reason why I have struck you with these examples, with all kinds of ignorance, 
The reason why I told you all the mistakes of these other nations, it is so that you do not deem yourself, you do not consider yourself to be a scholar. Then, if you encounter something which you already know, you will find it great. Suddenly you feel pride because something that you already know has come your way. And so you are proud of how much knowledge you have. Okay, The Imam is telling you, so be careful. I've given you all these examples of people who fell in this mistake. They thought they knew. And then they made the mistakes they made. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala punished them as nations or as people. So don't fall in their mistake, which is arrogance. Stay humble. Keep learning. Don't tell yourself, I already know. You do not already know. Then the Imam continues, فَإِنَّ الْعَالِمَ مَنْ عَرَفَ أَنَّمَا يَعْلَمُ فِيمَا لَا يَعْلَمُ قَلِيلٌ فَعَدَّ نَفْسَهُ بِذَلِكَ جَاهِلًا فَازْدَادَ بِمَا عَرَفَ مِنْ ذَلِكَ فِي طَلَبِ الْعِلْمِ اجْتِهَادًا The scholar, the true scholar, the Imam says, is the one who knows that what he knows compared to what he does not know is but very little. That's a true scholar. Not the one who thinks he knows a lot. It's the person who thinks when they compare what they know. Don't look at how much you know. Look at how much you don't know. And compare what you know to it and you will see that it is very small. It's insignificant. Right? And so the Imam says, the true scholar is the one who compares what they know to what they don't know. And they consider what they know to be very small. And then, and this makes him consider himself lacking knowledge. Jahila. He considers truly in himself, the person says, I don't know anything. And so what do they do? Do I stop when I consider myself? Now I know that I don't know. That's step one. So what do I do? He does something about it. And the more he is aware of this, the harder he will struggle to seek knowledge. Now this is someone who acts. First, I'm aware that I don't know. Because a lot of people don't even know that they don't know. This person has now reached the first stage. They know that they don't know. And secondly, they do something about it. They move towards seeking knowledge or the way the Imam says it. He says, This person struggles to seek knowledge. They spend a lot of time and energy to seek that knowledge. Remember all the descriptions that we gave of the scholar until now. The imam is summarizing them. This is someone who knows that they don't know. They consider themselves to be more someone who lacks knowledge than they have knowledge. Someone who struggles to gain knowledge. And now he's going to say, فَمَا يَزَالُ لِلْعِلْمِ طَالِبًا وَفِيهِ رَاغِبًا وَلَهُ مُسْتَفِيدًا وَلِأَهْلِهِ خَاشِعًا مُهْتَمًّا وَلِلصَّمْتِ لَازِمًا وَلِلْخَطَئِ حَاذِرًا وَمِنْهُ مُسْتَحِيًّا so the imam here is going to combine a number of different traits and we're going to come to some of these in detail and point them out. The imam is combining them here. So this person is going to remain in a state of knowledge seeking. Remember we said we're looking for the person who is hungry for knowledge. They don't stop. They're never satisfied. So he remains in a state of knowledge seeking, desiring it, benefiting from it. Revering scholars, the Imam says. He looks for knowledge and he respects people who carry knowledge. Revering scholars, giving them great importance, cautious of mistakes. And so he knows it's by acquiring knowledge that I'm going to avoid mistakes. Not only cautious, ashamed of faults. 
This is someone who deeply cares about getting rid of their defects, of their faults. How do I do this? I seek knowledge. Right? So the Imam is giving us very precise descriptions here. Again, I'm looking for this in my teacher, but I'm also trying to become this person. Then the Imam says, وَإِنْ وَرَدَ عَلَيْهِ مَا لَا يَعْرِفْ لَمْ يُنْكِرْ ذَلِكَ لِمَا قَرَّرَ بِهِ نَفْسَهُ مِنَ الْجَهَالَةِ So when he encounters that which he has no knowledge of, when he encountered something he knew, the Imam says, I don't want you to be filled with pride. Right? Now, he's encountering something he does not know. What happens when he encounters that of which he has no knowledge? He does not deny it. And the Imam here is talking about how you feel internally. This is really someone that when I encounter something, I'm honest with myself. This is something new. This is something I do not know. I need to learn this. Okay? He does not deny it for having already admitted to himself that he is ignorant. He has convinced himself. He has put himself in the mindset that there is a lot for me to learn. And so when I encounter something that may be beneficial, I'm going to go sincerely and learn it. Because if I already put in myself that I'm not really that ignorant of all of this knowledge. I know some. I know enough. I'm happy with how much I know. The moment you put yourself in that mindset, you're not going to be open to learning. You're not going to be seeking knowledge to get rid of your faults and be ashamed of them, as the Imam says. And then the Imam continues, الجاهل, So the Imam just gave us the description of the true scholar. Right? He said the true scholar is like this. Now he's going to give us by opposition. What about the person who is not the true scholar? Regardless of what people say about that person. The Imam is describing how they truly are. Right? He says, الجاهل, من من So the, the, the ignorant one, by opposition, the ignorant one is the one who considers himself a scholar, despite all of his ignorance and knowledge. And this is someone who is entirely reliant on their own opinion. They feel that their opinion is sufficient. What I know is enough. By opposition, he gave us the description. Now we're going to see the opposite description. So here the Imam says, by opposition, you remember the description he gave of the true scholar. This person, he stays away from scholars. While constantly attacking them or, or degrading them or insulting them, depending on how you uh, translate uh, Zariya. He immediately considers all those who disagree with him mistaken. And all those things which he does not know to be errors or to be misguidance. If I don't know it, it must be wrong. Right? This is, these are very subtle mistakes that we may fall into. It may look like it's obvious. It may sound like it's obvious. It's not. Do I automatically consider something wrong, mistaken, misguidance, because it doesn't match my knowledge? Or do I need to be open and go learn? Maybe I'm, I'm lacking knowledge here. Then the Imam continues, فَإِذَا وَرَدَ عَلَيْهِ مِنَ الْأُمُورِ مَا لَا يَعْرِفُهُ So he's still describing the person who is the false scholar or the true ignorant. فَإِذَا وَرَدَ عَلَيْهِ مِنَ الْأُمُورِ مَا لَا يَعْرِفُهُ أَنْكَرَهُ وَكَذَّبَ بِهِ 
وقال بجهالته ما أعرف هذا وما أراه كان وما أظن أن يكون وأنا كان So if this person if they encounter and this passage I have read in the beginning of the series when they encounter that of which they have no knowledge he denies it and belies it he considers it a lie and while relying on his ignorance he says I do not know this therefore it must be wrong right that's the criteria I do not know this therefore it must be wrong and then he adds the imam says wama arahu kan wama avunu ayakun it could never be it can never be it could never have been and how could it ever be since it does not match what i know as if what i know is the criteria for something to be true or not true right and then the imam continues wadalika lithiqatihi bi ra'yihi wa qillati ma'rifatihi bi and all of this is because of or it's due to his excessive confidence in his own opinion and his lack of knowledge about his own ignorance. The result from all of this is that this person forever remains, the Imam says, based on his opinions, about those things which are confusing to him, what should we do when we don't know? Become stubborn in what we don't know? This person is, because they're not open, they're not modest, they're not humble towards knowledge. So this person, the Imam says, forever is going to remain in those things which they do not know enough about, even when they are confusing to him. He knows when he's encountering something, this is confusing, I don't have full clarity on this. Yet, and about which he has no knowledge, relying on his ignorance, denying truth, lost in ignorance, the Imam says, too arrogant to ever seek knowledge. Too arrogant to lower himself to go and actually seek clarity about those things which they have no knowledge of. Okay, so this is part of where the Imam is writing to one of his sons, telling them never fall in this pattern. This is what led previous nations to ultimately deserve the wrath of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his punishment. It was their excessive reliance on their opinions as opposed to being open to learning, saying the truth is out there, not in me. I have to learn the truth. I have to be modest and humble towards the truth. This next hadith, and that's all. The, the, it's obviously a long letter, inshallah, as we said, maybe in the future one day we go through it in a much more detail. This next hadith brings together a lot of the topics that we talked about until now in this part, where we're talking about the description, the traits of the scholar. So part of it is going to talk about the importance of finding the person who is balanced between fear and hope, between mercy, God's mercy, and God's punishment. One. Two. Someone who has the right sources of knowledge and therefore shares the right sources of knowledge, and someone who has depth, someone who has insight and, and judgment and wisdom. Okay? So all of it combined in one hadith. So Imam al Baqir alayhi salam tells this hadith from Imam Ali alayhi salam. He says, Qala Amirul Mu'minin, salawatullahi alayhi, ala ukhbirukum bil faqihi haqqa. 
So there was similar wording from the previous ahadith that we saw, but it was al-alim kull al-alim. Okay, the scholar, the true scholar. Here, the expression used is the religious scholar or the scholar who has deep religious knowledge, al-faqih. Today, we use faqih in a different way. At that time, faqih was someone who has deep knowledge and technically about religion. Okay, today we say fiqh only about Islamic law, which is only one branch of Islamic knowledge. There's so much more, right? So faqih, we have to go back to its original sense as it was being used by Ahlul Bayt salam during that time. So Imam al-Baqir says, Imam Ali salam told the people, will I not tell you about the scholar of religion, the true scholar of religion? They said, yes, O Prince of the Believers. He said, Right? So first, the one who does not make people despair from the mercy of God. Condition one. And he does not make them feel safe towards the punishment of God, the wrath and anger of God. And he does not give them permissions to go and sin and disobey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then, so all of these we encountered in previous ahadith. Here's one more that the imam here will add. He says, وَلَمْ يَتْرُكِ الْقُرْآنَ رَغْبَةً And he never goes away from the Qur'an or leaves the Holy Qur'an behind willingly. Okay, so this, this is a very deep sentence. It's a few words, but the imam is saying this is someone who never lets go of the Qur'an so long as they can, willingly, رَغْبَةً so long as they can, they are with the Qur'an. So we can understand this very superficially. This is someone who's always reciting the Qur'an, thinking about the Qur'an, understanding the Qur'an. Or it could be in the more direct sense of what we're talking about, in the sense of knowledge. This is not someone who strays away, goes away from the Holy Qur'an. Everything they talk about, they bring it back to what the Holy Qur'an says. That's the source, that's the reference, and that's what they present to the world. Then the Imam continues, أَلَا لَا خَيْرَ فِي عِلْمٍ لَيْسَ فِيهِ تَفَهُّمْ أَلَا لَا خَيْرَ فِي قِرَاءَةٍ لَيْسَ فِيهَا تَدَبُّرْ أَلَا لَا خَيْرَ فِي عِبَادَةٍ لَيْسَ فِيهَا تَفَقُّهْ And there's one version, تَفَكُّرْ And there's one version of the hadith that adds, أَلَا لَا خَيْرَ فِي نُسْكٍ لَا وَرَعَ فِيهِ So this part is new, but the Imam is linking it to the previous part. So I'm adding them together. It makes a very comprehensive hadith. The imam says, Truly, there is no good in knowledge in which there is no understanding. This is the depth. Right? We said our religion says, go for the depth. Don't go for superficial understanding. The imam here is saying, this is knowledge. But it's a knowledge that has no tafahum, That has no deep understanding. The imam says, there is no good in that knowledge. La khaira. There is no good in knowledge that has no deep understanding. What else? لا خير في قراءة ليس فيها تدبر قراءة can mean two things here. There is no good in studying. That can be called قراءة. Learning, studying, or it can mean reciting, such as reciting the Holy Quran. There is no good in reciting without تدبر, without reflection. Only reciting to recite, only reciting to make sound. To repeat words. The Imam says that's not good. No good comes out of this. <laughs> Truly, there is no 
good in worship in which there is no deep knowledge. Fiqh is deep knowledge. It's to go to the bottom of knowledge. That's the true meaning of fiqh. He says, or the other way, if it's tafakkur, it's careful thought. There is no good in a worship which is not accompanied by or does not generate careful thought. And then finally, in one variant, the Imam adds, there is no la khayra fi nuskin la wara'afi. Nusk is when you become a recluse. You extract yourself away from people to worship. Worship intensely. That's nusk. Or tanassuk. You become a monk. Right? A recluse for spiritual reasons. The Imam says, he doesn't say there is no good in that. He says there is no good in that if la wara'afi. If it does not lead to God-fearing. Are you actually, is this making you fear God more? Or are you just doing it to do it? Are you just go through the motions? <coughs> so that was a hadith that I thought brings together a lot of what we covered until now. So inshallah you, you see that. <coughs> the next hadith, withholding knowledge when it is not appropriate to do so. There is a topic that inshallah we're going to get into in a little bit more detail later in the series. <clears throat> this topic is that there are times when it is not appropriate to share what you know. There are times when it is not appropriate to say everything that you know. There are times and circumstances and people who are not deserving of the knowledge that you have to share. And we're going to go through a number of ahadith that are going to tell us you have to be careful when you share the knowledge, with whom you share the knowledge, how you share the knowledge, and how much of it you share. Okay, inshallah, we're going to see that and we're going to add you know, details and context around it. So keeping that in mind, and inshallah, we'll give some details there. Keeping that in mind, let's go through these ahadith. We said one of the main characteristics, one of the main traits of this person that we call the teacher or the scholar is what? Is that this is someone who is sharing knowledge. In other words, this is someone who is teaching. They are sharing the knowledge they have with others. That's what we're looking for. What good is the knowledge if it's not being shared? That it stays with you? How does it help others? And you have to feel, and this was the notion of being a good guardian of over that knowledge. Do you know what to do with the knowledge you have? Right? That was the idea of guardian. Umana'ullah, as the, the hadith was say, were saying. That they are umana over, they have guardianship over the knowledge they inherited from prophets and messengers, the hadith were saying. Okay, so the first hadith from Imam Ali alayhi salam, he says, مَنْ كَتَمَ عِلْمًا فَكَأَنَّهُ جَاهِلٌ The one who dissimulates, the one who hides the knowledge that they carry, it is as though they are someone who is ignorant. There's no difference between this person and someone who doesn't carry knowledge if this person has knowledge but they're not sharing it. Right? So this is, again, keeping that condition in mind that there are times when it is not appropriate to share the knowledge you have and we'll talk about that later. So this is assuming, of course, that this is a condition, this is the normal circumstance where someone who carries knowledge should be sharing it. 
What is preventing you from sharing that knowledge? Why are you not sharing the knowledge? That's one. The next hadith from Imam Ali alayhi salam, he says, إِنَّ الْعَالِمُ الْكَاتِمُ عِلْمَهُ يُبْعَثُ أَنْتَنُ أَهْلِ الْقِيَامَةِ رِيحًا تَلْعَنُهُ دَابٍ the one who dissimulates, the one who hides the knowledge that they have, who do not share it, they will be resurrected with the greatest stench among those who will be resurrected among all the creatures on the day of resurrection. And then the Imam says, and every creature, even the smallest ones, will curse him so on the day of resurrection, or they are cursing him now. Okay, both interpretations are possible. Why? Because this is something considered atrocious, horrible, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has granted you, and we will see the hadith, the next hadith and others. This knowledge is not something that you were just randomly able to acquire. This is something Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala granted you. You have to feel it that way. You have to understand it that way. You are a custodian over something that was given to you. Your duty is not to keep it aside or to use it only when you know it's going to serve you as though it's a tool that you use for this world. The idea is the knowledge you have has to be constantly shared with others. Others have to benefit from this. Okay, So the imam here in the hadith, he says, the scholar who dissimulates his knowledge will be resurrected with the greatest stench on the day of resurrection, and either he is cursed or he will be cursed by every creature, even the smallest ones. The next hadith. So you see, I'm, I'm uh, going from the, the simplest and the easiest to understand to the ones that are harshest and the ones that are scariest. The next one from the Holy Prophet ﷺ, he says, أَيُّمَا رَجُلٍ آتَاهُ اللَّهُ عِلْمًا فَكَتَمَهُ وَهُوَ يَعْلَمُهُ لَقِيَ اللَّهَ عَزَّ وَجَلْ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ مُلْجَمًا بِلِجَامٍ مِنْ نَارٍ So, whenever God Almighty grants knowledge to a man, and this man dissimulates, this man hides the knowledge knowingly, he shall encounter God Almighty on the day of resurrection with while being muzzled with a muzzle of, made of hellfire. The muzzle is the thing you, the harness you put on an animal. Right? But for the human being, if you are muzzled, one, you're being treated like an animal. Two, you are being prevented from speaking because you did not speak in this world. Your duty was to speak and you did not. So now you have lost that privilege. Right? So now there's a harness, there's a muzzle on your mouth. Your duty was to share the knowledge and you did not share that knowledge. And this, again, on one way, we can say this applies to the big, great scholars, they have to be careful about this. I have to be careful about this. Do I know some things or no? I do know some things. Should I be sharing what I know? If I know something to be true, if I know there are people who don't know what I know, should I not be thinking about how do I share the information I have with them? Maybe it's going to be helpful to them. If it is not, well, I did my duty. I shared what I had. But to say that this is all obligations and responsibilities and duties that fall on others, but I have nothing to do with it, would be completely wrong. All of us carry some information, all of us carry some knowledge, things that we consider to be true. 
What are we doing with that information? So that we never fall in this category where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, you had knowledge, you could have shared one way or another. And how easy is it today in today's world of social media? You don't need to say things yourself. You don't need to sit behind a mic and a camera and talk. You can share an infograph, a poster, a really good event that you think people will be helped with. Contribute behind the scenes. It doesn't matter what. If you think there's a truth, something that will help people, guide people, are you working that role? Are you applying that role and being that role of spreading the knowledge? Maybe there are people that you think will benefit from this. You benefited from it at some point. Who else is now benefiting? Right? You don't want to fall in this category where the Holy Prophet, Imam Ali salam, or others are saying, you will be resurrected on the Day of Judgment, carrying a stench, being muzzled, because you had knowledge and you did not share it. There's very similar hadith, مَنْ كَتَمَ عِلْمًا مِمَّا يَنْفَعُ اللَّهُ بِهِ فِي أَمْرَ النَّاسِ أَمْرَ الدِّينِ الْجَمَهُ اللَّهُ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ So the same idea, the Holy Prophet says, if someone carries, so he adds this little detail. If someone is resurrected on the Day of Judgment while having dissimulated knowledge that could have, and so this is the detail, could have helped people or been beneficial to people in the matters of their religion. This is the specific uh, danger. It's not necessarily that I know knowledge about math or world history or economics or chemistry. That may be very useful. If it is going to help people save lives, so on and so forth, yes. Of course, we could easily argue that that would be incumbent to share. But what is clearly incumbent, and around this there should be no conditions to add, is this is knowledge that will help people with their faith. This is knowledge that will help people with their religion and belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The next hadith, and maybe I will add with this, end with this for this week. This hadith from Imam al-Sadiq alayhi salam, he describes seven categories of scholars. And this will be kind of the, the continuation of the same theme. The idea of what is the relationship between the person who carries knowledge and the knowledge they carry. Okay, so in the first case, <coughs> Imam al-Sadiq alayhi salam says, and inshallah we're going to build on this much later in the, or no, in the, in the upcoming lectures too. Imam Sadiq alayhi salam says, إِنَّ مِنَ الْعُلَمَاءِ مَنْ يُحِبُّ أَنْ يَخْزُنَ عِلْمَهُ وَلَا يُؤْخَذَ عَنْهِ فَذَاكَ فِي الدَّرْكِ الْأَوَّلِ مِنَ النَّارِ Okay, the Imam is going to give us seven categories of scholars. He says, the first category are those scholars مَنْ يُحِبُّ أَنْ يَخْزِنَ عِلْمَهُ There are those who like to store their knowledge, to keep their knowledge stored away. Okay, and not share it. Mom says they are in the first depth of hellfire. There are seven depths to hellfire. So there are scholars specifically who fall in the first depth. Why? Because they know, but they don't share. They refuse to share. They keep it stored away for all sorts of reasons. Okay? And then the Imam continues. I'm going to come back to these very quickly. The second one. وَمِنَ الْعُلَمَاءِ مَنْ إِذَا وُعِظَ أَنِفْ وَإِذَا وَعَضَ عَنَّفْ فَذَاكَ فِي الدَّرْكِ الثَّانِي مِنَ النَّارِ There are scholars who, if they are given advice, literally the imam says, they raise their nose. They're too arrogant. And if. 
They're too arrogant to receive advice from anyone. And when they give advice to others, annaf, they are aggressive and harsh and rude, violent in the way they give advice to people. This scholar, the Imam says, is in the second layer, in the second depth of hellfire. Okay. وَمِنَ الْعُلَمَاءِ مَنْ يَرَى أَنْ يَضَعَ عِلْمَهُ عِنْدَ ذَوِ الثَّرْوَةِ وَالشَّرَفِ وَلَا يَرَهُ فِي وَلَا يَرَى لَهُ فِي الْمَسَاكِينِ وَضْعًا فَذَاكَ فِي الدَّرْكِ الثَّالِثِ مِنَ النَّارِ And there are scholars who feel that they should only place their knowledge with those who have wealth and who have rank and nobility. And they never find a place for their knowledge among those who are deprived, those who are poor. They are in the third depth of hellfire. وَمِنَ الْعُلَمَاءِ مَنْ يَذْهَبُ فِي عِلْمِهِ مَذْهَبَ الْجَبَابِرَةِ وَالسَّلَاطِينَ فَإِنْ رُدَّ عَلَيْهِ شَيْءٌ مِنْ قَوْلِهِ أَوْ قُصِّرَ فِي شَيْءٍ مِنْ أَمْرِهِ غَضِبْ فَذَاكَ فِي الدَّرْكِ الرَّابِعِ مِنَ النَّارِ There are those scholars who follow the path of tyrants and the kings and the oppressors. That's how they act, because they carry knowledge. So, if any of their opinions are refuted, or if they feel that they were not given due respect, as you would treat a good king, for instance, they feel they are not being treated like a, a king, then they get angry. They are in the fourth depth of hellfire. وَمِنَ الْعُلَمَاءِ مَنْ يَطْلُبُ أَحَادِيثَ الْيَهُودِ وَالنَّصَارَى لِيُعِزَّ بِهِ دِينَهُ وَيُكْثِرَ بِهِ حَدِيثَهُ فَذَاكَ فِي الدَّرْكِ الْخَامِسِ مِنَ النَّارِ And there are those scholars who seek the stories of the Jews and the Christians in order to strengthen their position and increase what they have to say. They are in the fifth depth of heaven. We're going to come back and comment quickly on these. وَمِنَ الْعُلَمَاءِ مَنْ يَضَعُ نَفْسَهُ لِلْفُتْيَا وَيَقُولُ سَلُونِي وَلَعَلَّهُ لَا يُصِيبُ حَرْفًا وَاحِدًا وَاللَّهُ لَا يُحِبُّ الْمُتَكَلِّفِينَ فَذَاكَ فِي الدَّرْكِ السَّادِسِ مِنَ النَّارِ There are those scholars who place themselves in a position where they are giving judgments, legal verdicts and legal judgments in religion when and they ask, the Imam says, and, and the person says, and, they, and ask me. They tell people, ask me. When they may not successfully hit a single letter, the Imam says. They may not be correct about a single letter of what they are saying. They don't get anything right. And God does not like those who are fraudsters. Right? They are fraudulently claiming what they are. That's the true meaning of mutakallif. Right? God does not like those who are fraudsters. Those are in the sixth depth of hellfire. وَمِنَ الْعُلَمَاءِ مَنْ يَتَّخِذُ عِلْمَهُ مُرُوءَةً وَعَقْلًا فَذَاكَ فِي الدَّرْكِ السَّابِعِ مِنَ النَّارِ And there are those scholars, this one has two very clear different interpretations. There are those scholars who use their religion to be recognized for the excellence of their intellect. Right? Do you understand that? So I want people to recognize how smart I am and how intelligent I am. And so that's how I used my, in my knowledge. Or the other interpretation is that so that people consider their knowledge 
as being a matter of personal opinion. I came up with this. It's my innovation and my creativity. See how exceptionally intelligent I am. Different, right? Different ways of understanding it, but very close. In both cases, they are using their knowledge to be recognized for their intelligence and their own excellence, the excellence of their opinions. And so they are, they, they present their knowledge as being, they are themselves the source of that knowledge. And so here, the Imam says, those are the scholars that fall in the seventh layer of heaven, the deepest layer of heaven. So very quickly, to be maybe a little bit more adapted to our times. The Imam gave us this very graphic description, very clear description of different types of scholars. If we were to think about it in today's world, in today's times, the one who doesn't want to share, who doesn't fall in the category of the custodian, of the guardian, right? What's the issue there? The issue is that this person has become the break, the barrier in what we called much earlier in the series, we called the cycle of knowledge. When knowledge reached this person, the natural thing should have been that knowledge continues to other people through this person. And this person that was described in the previous ahadith as coming the day of judgment with a muzzle because they did not share, they broke that cycle of knowledge. You don't know how many people are being prevented from benefiting from that knowledge because you did not share it. You're just a piece in a much bigger cycle. You are keeping it selfishly for ego reasons. You are keeping that, re- that knowledge hidden. And there are multiple reasons. The Imam actually, in this same hadith, he, they give some of the reasons why. Because I'm not being paid enough for the knowledge. Because those who may benefit from it are not considered people of rank and nobility. So it doesn't increase my status. Because I'm not getting the proper recognition and respect in society or in my community. So I'm not going to share that knowledge. Until I get that, then that's when people will deserve my knowledge. Otherwise, it will stay hidden, stored, as the imam says. People think that this knowledge is not coming from me. They will not recognize my exceptional genius in having reached this knowledge. They think that anyone can just achieve this level of knowledge. No, I will keep it hidden, and I will only share it if that condition is going to be met. Right? And we said that in the beginning of the series. In today's world, maybe before it was something very abstract. In today's world, in societies of knowledge, we said power equals knowledge. And everybody understands this in today's societies, in knowledge societies. The way you acquire power in today's society is not wealth. It's not how much land you have, how much capital in the material sense you have. It's what is your level of control over knowledge? How much knowledge do you have control over? (coughs) How much knowledge can you produce? How much knowledge can you consume? How much knowledge can you generate yourself? (coughs) And how much knowledge can you keep from other people? You decide who sees what and who doesn't see what. This is exactly what the scholar is doing. They will not share the knowledge to use it as a lever of power. The second one, (coughs) 
The second one is the scholar who has arrogance. This was the scholar who, if they are given advice, they refuse. They're too arrogant to accept. And when they give advice to someone else, they are harsh and violent and aggressive. If they are receiving advice, they reject it. When they give advice to others, they are harsh, they are impolite, rude, disrespectful. Do you think people will want to learn from you? Or take advice from you? If this is the manner in which you deliver the advice, put yourself in that situation where someone is trying to give you. The advice is amazing. It's true in itself. How many people are going to take that advice if it's presented and delivered in a harsh, disrespectful way? No one will accept that. And people will equate that with religion. Religion is harsh. Religion is violent. Religion is disrespectful. Religion doesn't recognize me and my humanity and my personhood. And so I keep being attacked by religion. I don't want this religion of yours. If it doesn't know how to treat me well like a human being. They don't say this person doesn't know how to give good advice. They say religion is harsh. Religion is mistaken. And so this person is bringing people to God or pushing away by their lack of manners and the way they deliver the advice. They're pushing away people from religion, pushing away people from God. The third, the one who is focused on wealth and focused on rank. Once again, this is equated with religion. This religion is for the rich. This is not a religion that is actually sent for me. It's not going to help me. Those who are religious, those who have power, those who have knowledge, are those who are wealthy. Those who have a certain social class. As for us poor people, religion is not really sent to us. It doesn't help us in any way. And this can happen in a lot of communities and a lot of societies. Okay, the next one, when the person, the same idea as before, this is when the person who carries the knowledge presents themselves to the world or acts in the world as though they are a tyrant or a king themselves. This is the opposite of the teaching and we're going to come back to this a lot. Inshallah, in the next lecture, we're going to spend a little bit of time on this. One of the main traits should be that you become God-fearing and Humble. The more you gain knowledge, the more you should be humble towards people. Why? Because again, regardless of the piety and the God-fearing and the spiritual dimension to this, people are equating you with religion. You carry knowledge. You are the representative of religion. They're looking for the way you behave in society. If you behave in a respectful manner, in a humble manner, in a modest manner, this is inviting. People want to come to you. They want to talk to you. They want to learn from you. And this is how you can actually influence people. You act arrogantly and people are not treating you like a king. Then you reject and you refuse to share your knowledge with them. That's it. That knowledge cycle breaks and you are equated with religion. And religion is therefore something that is arrogant. Religion is arrogant. Religion is not shared unless, you know, you're willing to go out of your way to pay your tribute and your respect to that person. Of course, we can hope that this person has 
the ability to understand that they have to be modest and humble and, and, and. And the person who is a learner, not to care that this person is an arrogant jerk, but knowledge is more important, so I will go lower myself and learn from them. They are wrong, but they still carry good information. I will go get it out of them. That will happen sometimes. That's someone who is obsessive about learning. But those people are exceptional. For the majority of people, this scholar would have become a barrier, an impediment. Not a lot of people are willing to put themselves through degrading circumstances just to learn a little bit. They'll say, I I don't need to be degraded, to be disrespected to learn religion or to lower myself and give undue respect to someone who is not worthy of it. Right? And the next one, So this is, of course, today we would have to adapt this next one. The fifth one is the one that we mentioned, and right away I saw some some stares or question marks. The scholar, the Holy Prophet, uh, Imam uh, Imam Sadiq salam who says that this is a scholar who fills what they have to say with the stories of the Jews and the Christians. So, does everything that come from the Jews and the Christians, is it all wrong? Of course not. We believe that, in fact, it is all but one true faith. But there are distortions, and that's why the Imam says, he made sure to say it as their stories. Okay, why? They rely on their stories to fill what they have to say. They don't have enough knowledge and they feel like the knowledge that they have in their own religion is lacking. In today's world, we don't need the example the Imam was giving in his time. We would say, those who have to fill what they have to say with anything coming from anywhere. We're not learning from the Jews and the Christians. When Islam came, when Islam was first revealed, the Arabs revered the Jews and the Christians. They considered themselves to be unworthy. They considered the Jews and the Christians to be those who are learned, those who are scholars. They knew multiple languages. They knew how to read and write. And so the Arabs in general, before Islam, they held the Jews and the Christians to very high esteem, very high regard. And they would always want to go and learn from them. Okay, With Islam, this started to change. And the Holy Prophet was very clear, telling them, do not go and learn from them. Everything you need to learn, learn it from me. Because you're not able to distinguish between what is true and what is not. Okay? Of course, with time, this was completely distorted. Anyways, that's that's the history, early history of Islam. So, these people, because you lack content, you think that it's appropriate to go and fill, find filler information. And the problem is that filler information is filled with mistakes, filled with misguidance. Filled with things that are untrue. The whole idea of you sharing your knowledge is that this is going to help people, guide them. And you're filling what you have to say with all sorts of stories that are going to distort the whole message. And who says that this is something compatible with Islamic teachings? And today this is something that is happening in a rampant way, in a recurrent way. All sorts of trends I call them tropes. Anyone who studies a bit of culture studies, these are called tropes. An idea that spreads in society and it takes on a whole life of its own. Right? And so this is suddenly packaged with a, a hadith here and a verse of the Quran there and now it's packaged as being an Islamic teaching. Islam did not say it this way. It might be the opposite of what Islam says. 
but it's packaged as being Islamic and presented. Because it's difficult to go and do research, original research about new topics, and or even sometimes it's not even a new topic. Islam has spoken about this directly, but you haven't taken the time to learn it. It's much easier to see what's going on, what's being taught in university, what's on social media. You take it, repackage it with a couple of hadith or verses of the Quran, and you say this is what Islam says. This is Islam's theory on whatever it may be. Right? This is why the Imam has put it there in a very seriously dangerous area. He says this is a fifth rank of hell. That you're filling the knowledge that you're sharing with the world with things that are not Islamic. But you're presenting them as being Islamic. You're saying this is Islam. This is what Ahlul Bayt taught. Ahlul Bayt didn't say this or said the opposite. And the sixth one, clearly this is the scholar who puts himself, herself in a situation where they do not have the technical knowledge in an area. They are not an expert in an area and they are presenting themselves to the world as that expert. And this is something that I think all of us can understand. Today, to bring a very very concrete example, there are mistakes that have happened either because of sloppiness and lack of integrity or lack of competence in the engineering world. When a bridge fell and people died, they took all the metal of that bridge and they made it into rings. And when people graduate from civil engineering, they give them that as a reminder that there's a lot of responsibility that comes with the knowledge you carry. And there are people who died. So now you're going to wear the engineering ring on your pinky as a reminder that this knowledge comes with a responsibility. On the one side, you do your best, and when you don't know, you go and you learn. Don't put yourself in situations where you're not sure if this bridge is going to hold or not. This is people's lives. Well, religion is the same, if not more. So here the imam is very clearly saying, don't put yourself in a situation where you don't have the competence you don't have the rank, you don't have the technical knowledge about something, and you start giving judgments as though this is what God says, this is what God wants, this is the God's verdict on this. Are you sure? You're ready to take on that responsibility? Okay, so this is the sixth, and then the last one, we come back, as we started, we come back with ego. The seventh one is the scholar who wants to bring everything back to, it's all about me, and my intelligence, and my genius, recognize me. If you recognize me, then I will share my knowledge with you. If you don't, you're, you think that this is just knowledge that anyone can learn and anyone can share, I'm not going to share that knowledge with you. Right? So it's all about me. And today's world is all about me. We live in the me world. All about egoism. All about individualism. Right? This is today's narcissistic society. It's all about me. So we have to be careful as you gain knowledge. Don't share it. Don't present it in a way that gives the impression that you are something special in that knowledge. The knowledge is the knowledge. You're a conduit. You're a channel. The knowledge is going through you. There's nothing special about you. What's special is the knowledge you're sharing. The more you can live by that, the more you're going to shine. The more God will recognize the work you're doing and bless the work you're doing. Don't make it about you. You're just a conduit and a channel in that. Okay? It's not about you and your exceptional genius in the sharing of knowledge. 
Okay, so let's stop here. Happy to take any questions, concerns, comments. Wa sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi al-tayyibin al-tahirin. So are there any questions, concerns, comments about anything we said? Ahsantum. الله يخليكم الله يحفظكم واسمعكم في امان الله مع السلامة knowledge about the Arabic language, because the word here and the word, the same word, would mean a different meaning. So the, the question is about tadabbur. Uh, Allah khayra fi qira'atan laysa fiha tadabbur. From Imam Ali alayhi salam. And the question is excellent and very important. And and uh, a very big topic in lessons of ulum al-Qur'an and tafsir. A uh, huge topic of debate. So to what extent should we all be performing tadabbur when clearly there is also the danger that tadabbur falls into tafsir bil-ra'i uh, and, and interpreting the Holy Qur'an based on our own opinions, for instance, and uh, who should be performing tadabbur and so on and so forth. In short, the meaning of the original meaning of tadabbur is simply that you see what, what this means for you at a very practical level. What does it mean? You cannot just recite the Holy Quran and as though you're reciting, as a lot of our scholars say, as you're reciting a jarida, right? You're the morning paper. What does it mean for you that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is talking about these people that, you know, uh, were deserving of God's wrath? What did they do? What this, this prophet said this, this is how they acted, they were stubborn, this is what happened, they got a chance, they rejected it. Does it mean anything for you or are you just reading a story? Ultimately, tadabbur is only that. The problem that we encounter and where it became dangerous is that it started going into all sorts of, I think this verse is actually, uh, you know, as you see by some, for instance, they say, it's as though the Holy Quran is presenting the communist theory. The Holy Quran is talking about, you know, capitalist laws. The Holy Quran is, and this is where you start seeing that because there are defects in knowledge, they are taking and pulling the Holy Quran and making it say that which it is not saying. Right? That's one. Two, this is where you fall in the tafsir bil-ra'i, is when you're saying the Holy Quran, for instance, is, is giving this judgment, this is halal, this is haram, this is, you know, the true belief in, uh, for instance, the essence of God, the uh, what asma means, what the... This is clearly something, even if just reading the Holy Quran, you see, this is a topic that requires a little bit of uh, attention, careful understanding. This is perhaps the time to go and seek the deeper meaning of the Quran, and you need technical knowledge for this. But the idea that no one should try to understand the deeper meaning of the Quran just by reading it, that's wrong. And there are people who say that, and that's not acceptable. The Holy Quran was revealed in Arabic. If someone understands Arabic, 
and they are moved by the meanings of the Holy Quran, this is 100% valid. This is a first level of understanding the Quran, and this is how the Arabs living in the time of the Holy Prophet understood it, without understanding that there are layers upon layers of meaning here. Now, for those who have the capacity and the knowledge and the patience to go and understand, great. This is where you can't go. And inshallah, one day we'll talk about this. Some of our imams have said, you know, there are four layers of understanding the Quran and they explain what each of them are. And the last layer is inaccessible. Unless you have an infallible telling you this, it's not something a human being can reach. It's like you need the, someone to decipher a, a code between God and his messenger and his divine uh, guides to humanity. You need them. And God made it that way so that you continue needing them. And don't think that you can reach that meaning by yourself. But there are meanings that you can reach by yourself. And those meanings should be accessible to everyone. They are there as a guidance. And the Holy Quran insists on this. So now today as a reaction to how far people are going in in interpreting the Quran while not having any tools <laughs> interpreting the Quran. There are some who say, don't do any interpretation of the Quran. Well, it depends. What we're saying is you have to do reflection. You have to reflect on what does this verse mean for you. You can take a verse of the Holy Quran, you read it in the morning after Salat al-Fajr, and spend the whole day thinking about it, and that will be guidance for you in that day. It will be spiritual guide. And you don't need to go and read, you know, 72 different opinions about this verse. Right? This is guidance. This is tadabbur. It means something to you. The Holy Quran, you read Surah Al-Duha, there is 15, 20 lessons to be learned from those few verses. That's it. That, that's a way to live. And a way to understand and to rely upon God and to remember those who are poor and those who are orphans and so on and so forth. To say all of that is not accessible unless you have technical knowledge. No, that's not true. The Holy Quran says, "Bilisanin Arabian Mubin." It's a clear, manifest Arabic language. You have Arabic language, you will understand what the Quran is saying. You get into trouble when you start to add layers of meaning, and that's what the Quran, the the technical scholars, technically they say, "Yuqawul al Quran." You are now saying the Qur'an said, the Qur'an didn't say, you're saying the Qur'an said. This is where it starts to become dangerous. And that's why now, when they do tadabbur, they call it jalsa. And they have someone who has a background in religious knowledge, technical knowledge, tafsir al-Qur'an, to kind of facilitate that jalsa. But that's not originally when the imam says tadabbur, that's not what the imam is referring to. Now it's acquiring a new technical sense because people have gone too far. And saying, you know, I think the Quran. No, keep your thinking to yourself. What at at a very superficial Arabic language? What does this verse actually say? What does it mean for you? Is it impacting you spiritually? How are you going to live better in your life because of this verse? That's it. That's the dabbur. So I, I said it very quickly. I, I just said it as a condition. 
that if you have solid Arabic, then you can perform tadabbur. I said it as an easy condition, but it's not an easy condition. And in fact, the true miraculous nature of the Quran is it's Arabic. Right? That, that's the true miraculous nature. Everything else is secondary, but unfortunately today, no one has the Arabic capability to recognize the miraculous nature of the Arabic. So we rely on the secondary types of the miraculousness of the Qur'an. We go for the scientific aspect, we go for parts of the eloquence that we find in the Arabic. The Arabic language itself, as used in the Holy Qur'an, is the initial mirror. So I don't want to uh, under uh, or, or downgrade of the value of the Arabic. But I also don't want to uh, fall into the trap of saying tadabbur is this highly technical thing that is inaccessible to anyone. If you have enough Arabic language, you can perform tadabbur at this level, which is to serve as a guidance spiritually. That's the point of tadabbur. The, Holy, the Imam salam, the point is, do not make the recitation of the Holy Quran only about saying, uttering the, the sounds. Ph- phonetically reciting the words. A lot of people do that, but there's no tadabbur, right? It doesn't impact them in any way. That's what the, the, the Imam is saying, right? But you do get tawab, of course, depending on your intention. 100% you get tawab for every letter. Yeah, the last observation. Yeah. We mentioned what we call the seven or the six uh, type of ulamas and the depth, what you call, they go into the fire. Now, I'm just, as you said, praying that there was an advocate. And then somebody said, well, look, do I really, do I really need to be an alim and then what you call, get uh, either in first or second or third? Okay, let me know this much of knowledge and no need for me what you call to become an alim or a scholar and what you call run the risk of uh, getting into one of the six or seven or the pit, uh, pit fires. Yeah. Isn't that some sort of a discouraging kind of a thing for, for, a, for, for scholars or to, to be a scholar? And, and probably, maybe, maybe you might answer that in a subsequent lecture, uh, lecture where what are the, what you call the, the scholars' uh, uh, merits and ranks and, and rewards? Yes. And that was just on the race. It yeah. could be a, a factor that may be demotivating at all. I don't want to become a scholar. Who needs this? So yeah, so the question is in case anyone is uh, watching and they can't hear is um, these are, are types of hadith that are perhaps going to be discouraging when they mention the, the responsibilities associated with the knowledge and, and the risks and the dangers. And we're going to see quite a few of them. Um, so a few answers to this. Definitely one of them is we're going to explain, we're going to spend a few lectures on the merits and the ranks and the rewards of the scholars, inshallah, but we keep it until the end. Okay, as we did with the learner. That's, that's one. Secondly, we began the whole series, I mean, I don't know how many lectures we spend on this, that you, your value, your rank, your position before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is equal to your, uh, how much knowledge you carry, period. So if this is not encouraging enough, if this is enough, motivating enough to become a learner, to become therefore a scholar, then I don't know what is. You rank your value in this world 
and before Allah, which in other words means in paradise, is equal to your level of knowledge, the depth of your knowledge, the truthfulness of your knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and He wants from you. So your humanity is equal to your knowledge. And, and that's what we try to establish Islamically 100%. That's, that's one. And the second thing is, we know in our religion, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, there is this hadith, we've, we've quoted it a few times. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in, in some of the uh, hadith, we have people who will show up on the day of the afterlife. And when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will ask them, why did you behave in a certain way or not in another? They will say, I didn't know. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when they say, Kuntu la a'lam. And the answer of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, or is going to be, Halla ta'allamt. Why did you not go and learn? What we tried to argue from the beginning of this series is that maybe, maybe there was a time when it was sufficient to know a little bit about religion and get by through life. What we're arguing in this series is that this is no longer possible. It's no longer possible to content ourselves with a superficial understanding of religion in today's world. Today's world is too complex. And things that looked like they were black and white for someone who was religious before, in today's societies, complex societies, it's all going to be gray. And so if I combine these two together, between on one side we live in a very complex world, and on the other side, I need to seek clarity in my religious duties. What is my worldview? What is my Islamic position? How do I live Islamically? If someone can clearly say, I, I already know 100% how to live Islamically, and they're happy with that, that's fine. The Holy Quran accepts that too. And there are people who are happy with that, and there are people who are not happy. And the Quran says, Those who want to compete, this is the area of competition. Right? Let everyone show their stuff. Let them compete. Let's see who finishes first and second and third. Right? Why only compete in the World Cup? <laughs> is this only the only area for worthy of competition? The Holy Quran says this is the competition. Right? So I think this is where there is an infinite room to grow. Inshallah, these are hadith, and I think we're going to be in that for a while because we're really focusing right now on the duties and the responsibilities of knowledge. Because when we're going to talk about, unfortunately, sometimes there's too much emphasis on, and that's why we kept it until the end, too much emphasis on the rewards and the merits of knowledge. And this is great. But before I get the rewards and the merits, I have to understand the duties. And I have to be able to check off that I am actually using the knowledge in the right way. That I am sharing it. That I am sincere. That I am trying to do the good that I can with that knowledge. In that case, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to reward me. And we're, when we're going to see the rewards... And I think it was already a shock when we went through the rewards for the learner. It was shocking for someone who has not gone through these before. They're shocking. It's incredible that it's unfathomable, unimaginable how much reward Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives to someone just because they are a sincere seeker of knowledge. And then when we're going to reach the scholar, it's going to be that multiplied. So before I focus on that, before, let's really understand, but who is the scholar? To meet the condition to be a scholar, as encouraging as that's going to be, let's really take time to understand what is being a scholar. What are you doing with religion? 
What are you doing with your knowledge? And this is the balance, right? That the duty, the responsibility, the responsibility that is upon you is going to only be matched by the merit that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to give, or the opposite. The merit and the rewards are going to match the responsibility on your shoulders. If you're able to live up to that, then the rewards are unmatchable. But that means that the responsibility is huge and the sacrifice is huge. The work, the struggle, the effort, as is everything else in our religion. It's all aligned and balanced. It's it's not random. Right? Yeah. So inshallah, we're headed in that direction. So none of these lectures, as beneficial as they may be as a standalone, should be looked at as this is a, a series and they have to be taken together because there's a lot of conditions and a lot, a lot of ifs and buts that have to be added. And inshallah, at the end, the, for every topic, the, the, the image is going to be clear towards the, as it was, for instance, in the case of the learner. I think we spent 13 lectures or so on the learner and we covered everything from, from the duties and responsibilities to the merits and rewards. So now we're focusing on the, the duties and responsibilities and it's going to be harsh for a little while for a few more lectures where we're still going through the the characteristics and the and therefore the duties and responsibilities of the the scholar and once those are understood exactly like tfadaltu that these look like they are very heavy they are very burdensome why would anyone bother themselves with all of these risks and all of these dangers then we're going to see the other side of the equation. It's because these are the rewards. And those rewards can only be attained with this sacrifice and with this risk and with this effort. Right? Like everything else in our religion. Yeah. Is there a way that to summarize the lecture in a, in a short form, in a written form, because you know, uh, once you woke up from here, uh, the rate of attention is not, I mean, uh, one cannot remember everything that you spoke about. I mean, okay, we come to the next lecture, then again you what you call, uh, summarize what happened last time. But uh, still, and it's not it's not very easy, but you know, they say the, 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 the written knowledge is uh, what you call something that you can refer to, you can read. You can read it once, or you remember, you forget, you can go back to it, and so just, I know it's, it's not easy, but I'm just, think about if it is the way, that a one hour, or maybe, I don't know, 45 minute lecture, it, it could be summarized, and maybe, uh, you know, I, there, there are some book summaries, where you have the full book version, and then the summary. Abridged, pages, yeah. Eight pages, <coughs> to give the gist of what is in the entire book. So maybe that's something you can, uh, if you have the time, I know you don't have the time, Inshallah, inshallah. I haven't thought of, of summarized uh, lectures in lecture form. I do try after every big topic in the series. We spent usually one lecture summarizing a lot of what we covered. Yeah. I'm sure if I woke up from I'm not remember. Of course. Yeah. Part of the lecture is written form. Yeah. That itself would have a person to which so those are available, and inshallah, they will be made available, inshallah. Those are all written. The ahadith are, are available and written and will be shared, inshallah. Allah yikhadikum. Allah yikhadikum. Tfadhalu. Of course. Tfadhalu.
Ahsant. Is your name Muhammad? Muhammad Hussain. Very nice to meet you, Muhammad Hussain. So, very important question. When you learn something from a scholar, how do you know that this is true or not? The short answer to this is you have to gain enough knowledge to be able to determine. So you have to be um, just like when, for instance, are you watching the World Cup right now? Soccer? No? Do you watch any sports? Which sport do you like? Soccer. So you and I know a lot about soccer. We know the rules, but usually there's only one person on the field who's a referee. Why did that person become a referee? They, they become a specialist. And so sometimes we, you and I will look at something and we'll say, we're not sure, was this an offside or not? Should they give him a foul or not? He knows right away. Because he learned and he became an expert in that field. So when we see something and we know a little bit about it, sometimes the little we know is enough. I can right away tell, this is right, this is wrong. We're done. Right? You know right away, this is black, this is white. This is right, this is wrong. Sometimes we're not sure. If you're not sure, on the soccer field, what do you do? You go to the referee. And the referee is going to say. In real life, it's the same thing. Your car is broken. If it's something simple, you can fix it. If it's too complicated, what do you do? Either you become a specialist, so you become a mechanic, or you bring it to the mechanic. And the mechanic will fix So this is why you have one, you always have to be learning more so that you don't really need to rely always on others for a lot of the things you can learn them yourself, right? And this is what you're doing. That's why you're here today. So all the time you're gaining more knowledge, which means that you are more able to, when you hear something, when you see something, to say, this is right, this is wrong. That's one. Two, you have to have people like the referee, like the mechanic, Right? You have to have people that you trust enough that you can go to them. And what do you do if you don't trust 100%? You can go to another one. I can bring my car to a mechanic. He'll tell me, I think this is what the problem is. So what do I do? I'm like, okay, maybe I'm not 100% sure. Maybe there's a mechanic who knows more. I go to a second mechanic and he tells me it's the same problem. That is, I'm like, okay, now I have two mechanics telling me that's a problem. So there's a very good chance that's a problem, right? But it means I have to find people that I trust in this field. So in soccer, do I trust this referee that he really knows? He's not cheating me. He's not lying. He's truthful. And he knows really about this field. So the same thing in religion. You have to find people that you trust or you trust people who trust. If you trust your father and your mother and they tell you, yeah, this is someone who knows a lot about religion. And this person also tells you so-and-so, they know a lot about religion. And a third and a fifth and a sixth and a tenth person starts saying, okay, maybe all those people are, they know what they're talking about. This person probably does know a lot about religion, so I can trust what they're saying. And you rely on that until you become the expert, right? Until you can become a mechanic or you become a referee or you become a scholar in religion. 
And you say, now I can really assess for myself. Until we become the expert, we have to rely on others. So the idea is you have to try to find someone that you can really trust or you trust people who trust them and you rely on them. And all of our religion is built this way, like every other thing in life. When you have a problem with health, you go to the doctor, you go to the surgeon. Problem with your house, with plumbing, you go to the plumber. And you're not sure, you might ask a second, third, fourth opinion, right? So that's the same way in religion. Make sense? Yeah. Okay, I said, good question. Tfadlalu. Don't have this light. How could we, you know, 
follow the footsteps of the Imam and and comply with our duty of sharing the knowledge. Who should we offer any knowledge? When when is it our tikkif? When could we stand back? Um, I'm asking because it's part of my personal experience for many years. I'm saying you know journey from one half to another one. Okay, so deep, deep and, and uh, nuanced question. Uh, thank you very much for the question. Um, the first point you touched is um, the two sides of, of the responsibility and the bounty. And uh, subhanAllah, as human beings, we, we often, to really understand something, we have to focus on it only from one angle. When it is a lot of things all at once. Okay, that's, uh, you know, if you study philosophy, Aristotle calls it categories. Okay, and so... It's the same thing, but you have to focus only on time or only on space or only on one dimension. It's the same thing, but we can't grasp all of the aspects all at once. Reality is is what it is, but we tend to focus on it from our relative point of view as a responsibility and a duty and a difficulty. Or the same thing, we could look at it as a bounty and a blessing and something positive. And the Holy Quran is full of these references, by the way. It's the same thing. And what you do with it is going to determine what it is for you. At the end, was it a ni'mah or a niqmah? It's the same thing that we're giving you. And at the end, what you're supposed to feel is, At the end, you're supposed to be neutral, equal in distance to all of this. Okay, but it's the same thing. You deal with it as you're supposed to. This is a ni'mah in shakartum la'izidannakum. The same thing. In kafartum, you, you're ungrateful towards it. That's what kufr here means. You're ungrateful to the ni'mah. Inna adabi shadid. I gave you the same thing. You want me to give more of it to you? It's going to be amazing to you and good to you. I will add more. You have to act in a grateful way. Show me you're grateful for this. Use it in the right way. The same thing. You are ungrateful in what I gave you. It becomes a niqmah and it transforms into adab. The same thing, right? And so knowledge, subhanAllah, is the same. But this is the general rule for everything in this world. The universe is built on this divine principle. And uh, specifically for ilm, for instance, I think Imam Ali alayhi salam says, الْعِلْمُ يَهْتِفُ بِالْعَمَلِ فَإِنْ أَجَابَهُ وَإِلَّا ارْتَحَلُ Right? That's a condition. You act on knowledge, you keep it, and it grows. You don't act on knowledge, it leaves. The knowledge does not stay. Okay, So what are you doing with the knowledge? That's why we said it's a, it's a condition. So 100% you are right that uh, the same knowledge, we are presenting it as duties and responsibilities and a burden. But that burden, the other side of it is the merit and the reward and the Okay, so so that was the first point. So thank you for bringing that up. Hadith Unwan. Um, very quickly, and we talked about different parts of Hadith Unwan in the past, in the in the series. Um, to be very technical about Hadith Unwan al-Basri, to be uh, honest, 
it seems that hadith unwan al-basri is weak in terms of a chain of narrations okay that's just for a technical discussion if you go back through the isnad you'll see that it's weak it's a weak hadith and there there are things in it that may or may not be compatible with the teachings of ahl al-bayt alayhim there is a there is a tone in it that seems to at least have had injections from the sufis of that time or or later okay anyway so that's a whole discussion technical still we used it in the series and and we mentioned those caveats just so that we know at a technical level and i think in today's world because i saw that uh, and i haven't gone through the series but i saw that there's a very heavy reliance on hadith unwan when everything being relied upon in the hadith is actually available elsewhere. But people are relying all on hadith unwan al-Basri. So I mentioned this just because so that we approach it with that, with that uh, point of view. Um, the two questions, however, is who to share with and how to know. Um, point number one. By default, and inshallah, this is going to become clear in the next lectures. By default, we're going to argue that in our religion, by default, we're supposed to be sharing knowledge. Until you run in a situation or you have reason to believe that, you shouldn't be. Okay, so it's a matter of understanding this. Is there a spiritual dimension to this? Like everything else, 100% there is. Do we have access to it? No, we can't claim to know unless you have that type of clear basira that you know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is guiding you and telling you not to, by default, unless you have good reason. And we're going to see in some of the ahadith, it's going to be mentioned. I was planning on starting it today, but we didn't have time. So inshallah, next time we're going to start with some of the criteria that the imams give us, situations, conditions where don't share your knowledge. This is not the right person. This is the, not the right place. Don't share the knowledge here. You can hold back. And you really feel like you're not doing anything wrong by holding back. You're putting yourself in danger. You're putting someone you know in danger. 100% this falls in taqiyya. End of story. But even beyond that, do not degrade the knowledge. <laughs> Don't give it to people who are unworthy of that knowledge. And so we're going to see some criteria that the imams give for this. Because you're wasting the knowledge. You are putting in the energy and the time to teach people who are not worthy of that knowledge. Because of certain ways that they act and the imams are going to mention. People who are stubborn and obstinate in their opinions, the imams will say. Yes, yes. And so you have to be able to assess or know the situation. So in today's world where you have access to, I don't know, I can talk and 10,000 people might hear me. Yeah, it's that is no longer the case because maybe 8,000 of them are, it's going to make some sort of positive impact. Why do I care about those 2,000? Those 2,000 who are not interested, it's not enough to degrade my knowledge because there's enough people who are still benefiting. Unless it falls on the other one, which taqiyya, for instance, or then that's a different discussion. But there's no harm to me and I can make the truth reach, then it's by default. Spread. Spread and you keep going. So long as there's not enough harm to you, you keep going with spreading the knowledge. That's one. Two, I would argue that there is a reason why, many reasons why, um, our religion always starts by, start with what is most relevant and the closest to you. Our religion always builds all good on that rule. 
والأقربون أولى بالمعروف Start with what is immediate and close Start with your family Start with your children Start with your neighbors Start with your... Right? And then you expand On one side, it means that You're building a, a society from grassroots up Right? If every area is actually working on itself There's a lot less work to do at the high level Which no one has the resources to do Except, you know, in today's world like a state Or huge organizations Or to really reach everyone Okay, but that's it means that everyone is doing their share at their level so that that work, whether it's happening or not, because there's enough grassroots happening, there's enough positive and enough good already happening. That's one. The other aspect of this is that imagine all the practice you're getting and no one talks about this. Imagine how much practice you've gotten if you sit with your family and you make it a culture to sit with your family and preach to them, preach to your children. Preach to your neighbors and to your good friends and talk to them and practice these arguments and these thoughts that you have and you think are worth sharing. And go through the discussion with people and let them counter you and have an answer to this. And you're going to quickly find out that it doesn't come out as easily as you think it does. And you're not as eloquent as you think you are. And they're going to ask you something that seems so simple and you can't convince them. And you have to go back and research. But what's the best way to express this argument? Do this enough at the small level so that when you present yourself to the world, you've gone through all of this. You're not, you're, otherwise you're going to hit a wall. It's impossible to just jump in on day one and you're going to be polished and eloquent and smart and convincing from day one. You've probably had you know, thousands of hours of practice before you reach this. So when did this happen? So one way I would argue is start, don't wait. Don't wait for the perfect conditions. Don't wait until you can talk to 10,000 people at once. Start with, can you talk to one? Can you talk to two? Can you talk to three? Start expanding and work on your ability to express the truth that you know. And be convincing and do it well. And that's it. Our religion doesn't say guide the world. Our religion says guide one. <laughs> that's it, right? In yahtadi bika shakhsun aw rajulun in the ruwayat. That's it. That's all you're aiming for. Guide one person. Man ahya nafsan. That's it. You're aiming for one person. Can you guide one person? Yes? Now go to the next. And our religion was initially based this way. The Holy Prophet did not preach openly to all, all at once. The only times that he did something like that was after the message was out. But the beginning of it was very modest and one-on-one. -on -one. Right? Until, you know, the, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told him, now... You have to call all of your tribe, 40 men all at once. And even that is back and forth and they reject and he keeps going. But all part of that is you're building conditions for yourself and for the truth to be accepted. And I think we don't do enough of that in today's world because everything is grand scale. We don't notice the small scale. We don't notice the one-on-one. -on -one. We don't notice the little work happening that is extremely important and positive, and it's having huge impacts. But we don't notice that because when you see you know, one YouTube video with 36 million views, that's what we're aiming for. Who cares about that? That's, that? We don't control that part. The part you control is what you can put out there and build the conditions that you can actually be convincing and have reach, be influential. What are the conditions that I've worked on? How well can I present my message? And the last point maybe related to this is, unfortunately, in a lot of cases, we think that sharing knowledge means I have to share my knowledge, right? I have to sit and share. It doesn't need to be that. 
It's someone else's knowledge. All I need to do is become the channel, help people reach it. You know, I could, you know, dedicate funds and money to publish books. That's it. That's all that's required. Maintain maintain mosques and Husseiniyat that need money to have bring speakers to talk about these important topics. That's enough. Whatever it may be, have a channel, be part of, so long as you feel like you are contributing to the sharing of the truth in the world. And inshallah, we're going to focus more the next, uh, uh, the next lecture. We're definitely going to come back to this and start pointing to types of knowledge that are perhaps even more important than others. Okay, inshallah. But I think that the question is extremely relevant and we need to talk about or think about in very practical terms what it means. Of course, there is taqiyah. Of course, we have to know what to say to whom and when and in what format. A lot of this, inshallah, start small. In our religion, we don't need to kind of move mountains, right? Start small, something within your reach, something that allows you to impact those closest to you, immediate to you, produce results and expand and it doesn't need to expand in, in scale right expands to go to the next person that's it knock on the next door not nothing more than that inshallah that answers but the question was very loaded <laughs> Allah uh, my question is that uh, so scholars they have like Um, you have to explain the last part of your sen- of your question to me. Who doesn't have reason? Yeah, it means because you trust, you're not using your intelligence. To, uh, the yeah. If, uh, a yeah. If their knowledge has no reason, yeah, that cannot be true. There's always a reason for the knowledge that they're sharing. Th- that they share knowledge has no reason, or the knowledge that they have has no reason? The that, uh, they think. Yeah, we're not interested in that, because you can think your own knowledge too. You can say thank you, you might be curious about their opinions, Right? But that's not the real knowledge we need from them. What I need from the scholar is the real knowledge. And the real knowledge has reason behind it. It comes from the Holy Quran. It comes from Ahlul Bayt. It comes from the Holy Prophet That's the knowledge I want from the scholar. The rest, what they think about, they're not sure, they have opinions. That's good. That's for them. I might be curious about it, but I don't really need it from them. You have one more? Yeah. Go. <laughs> so it's, uh, if you share knowledge, and uh, like uh, you, uh, you read uh, like uh, more uh, than uh, 10 surahs, and uh, you know what, uh, what the verses means, and you share the knowledge, How do you know if uh, how do you know if uh, uh, it will uh, give you hasanat or 
if you did it with good intentions? So if you share knowledge, it doesn't matter who's getting it. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala rewards the part you control. So you control what you're doing. What you're doing is sharing knowledge. The other person, whether they accept your knowledge or not, they are a good person, they are a bad person, you don't control that. The Holy Prophet sometimes he would share things with people and they reject, right? Not everybody became a good Muslim, right? So those people... In those cases, does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give him rewards? Of course, even though those people were not good and they did not accept, right? So you're the same way. You can accept yourself and then you can share the knowledge. What people do with it, it's up to them. You get hasanat 100%. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives hasanat so long as you're doing it for the right reasons. Okay? Okay. Allah الله يحفظكم وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله الطيبين الطاهرين